This is Burkittsville, formerly Blair. It is a small, quiet Maryland town, much like a small, quiet town anywhere. No more than 20 families laid their roots here over 200 years ago, many of whom remain either on this hill or in the town below. There are an unusually high number of children laid to rest here, most of whom passed in the 1940s. Yet no one in the town seems to recall anything unusual about this time, to us anyway. Yet legend tells a different story, one whose evidence is all around us, etched in stone. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And uh, we are in in the middle of seasons. We're not really in any season right now. This is a, a seasonal special episode. It's It's... The day this drops, it'll be the day before Halloween, and so we couldn't let that pass without giving you uh, a Halloween recommendation. And we have a guest, and I'm very excited for our guest today, Chaz Mesmer. Chaz, welcome to the show. Thank you. Gentlemen, no, thank you. It's, uh, it's awesome to be here. I'm super excited to be a part of a Halloween episode, and uh, love horror. Let's, uh, let's do this. Okay, so, so I've, got a, I've got some questions for Chaz, Ian, do you mind if I take take a little bit of time and ask Chaz some questions? No, let's let's do it. Okay, so so just for the record, Chaz is my my brother-in-law. My my wife and his wife are sisters. That's it. So that's a thing. So there's there's clearly nepotism in this episode. So just so it's <laughs> fair there. enough. Um, so Chaz, really quickly, I wanted uh, if you could just uh, I wanted to know where you went to school and what you studied. Okay, so um, in college, I went to the University of Washington, and I studied uh, film theory, film history, and then after that, a couple years later, I went up to Vancouver Film School, where Kevin Smith went, and uh, did like a, the, the one-year program where they kind of just focus on production and uh, kind of every aspect of it, really just one-year intensive uh, from editing, cinematography, everything in between. And... And again, I'm, I feel like I'm prime, but I was so, and what is it that you do? Like, what is your profession? Uh, actually, I'd love to figure that out at these, <laughs> these days, but, uh, uh, editor by trade, uh, do, um, work a lot with, uh, you know, kind of, um, retail, uh, experiences, interviewing bands, uh, editing short little web type things and, uh, yeah, kind of everything in between. But, uh, in the, the middle of these times, Pretty much just on Zoom every day for meetings, and uh, that's about it. Zoom's my life right now. So, yeah, that, ain't that the the truth? Yes. Um. So, and Ian, you might not be able to see this. So, I'm looking at your. By the way, we haven't mentioned it, but if you have listened to the episode, we're talking about the Blair Witch Project today. Chaz is wearing a Blair Witch Project shirt, and he has uh, the most epic horror genre sleeve on his right arm, which includes that crazy weird wooden cross from the Blair Witch. So I, I just wanted to know what is, what is your link to horror films? What is it about horror films that, 
that brings like excitement for you? Oh man. Um, you know, honestly, uh, just growing up, I remember, you know, when I'd, uh, visit my, uh, father, my parents were divorced. So I'd go over to my dad's and he was always into the Friday, the 13th series, uh, Halloween, all, all that type of stuff. And, uh, probably at a age way too young, uh, he let me kind of sit on the couch with him and watch, uh, certain movies. And I remember, uh, vividly, Friday the 13th, part seven, the new blood. He let me watch and that movie terrified me. Now you go and watch it and it's more of a comedy than anything. <laughs> but uh, uh, the one that really got me, uh, weirdly enough, was uh, the original Predator with okay. Arnold Schwarzenegger, yeah. uh, John McTiernan. Uh, I saw that, I guess, when it came out on video, I was probably seven or eight. And uh, man, that night I was terrified. And uh, I'd go out, you know, go outside, play uh play with my friends and you'd hear a crow sound and it was similar to the sound the predator made and i was like oh my god the predator's real and for some reason still to this day uh my wife your sister-in-law makes fun of me i'm like the predator legit scares me and uh yeah she she gets a good kick out of that and I, i'm gonna say the original predator the sequels they're fun uh to an extent but uh yeah it just there's something about i guess um it, you know it, it's kind of cliche to say but horror movies are like a roller coaster right but it also gives you a chance to be uh to feel fear in a safe environment i guess um and when you find those really quality horror movies that stick with you uh i it, they're just like they're they're kind of like comfort food to me i mean i can't tell you you know if uh if if i've had a bad day or whatever i'm throwing on friday the 13th part four or whatever just to you know i i I joke with the wife, but I call them my friends, Michael, Freddie, Jason. I'm just going to go. It just, uh, it just reminds me of kind of like, a, you know, you can kick back, get some thrills and, um, you know, not have to worry about it actually happening to you in real life. So, yeah. Dig it. I love it. Um, three more questions. Well, before you, before you jump in, I got to say much respect for the Predator love. That is a, a minimum twice a year watch for me. Predator is way high up there on my list of not-so-guilty pleasures. And also, uh, talking about the Friday the 13th series, I'm working my way slowly through those, and I just uh, finished Part 7, the one with the... Uh, was it the New Blood, the one with... It's got the telekinetic girl in yes, it, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Jason was, versus uh, Carrie, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was... It, you know, it actually... It wasn't as bad as what I was expecting. I, part 5, I think, has been the really low point so far. The one where they kind of do the bait and switch because Jason isn't really in that one. Yep. Yeah, no, you know, yeah. it's funny that you that you say that because I used to avoid that movie like The Plague uh, when watching that series. And I think uh, recently, probably within the last year, I revisited it and it almost seemed like a new movie because of all of them, I have not watched that one as much. Sure. It's it's a bad movie. Don't get me wrong. It's yeah. really bad. But yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you may appreciate that. I, I liken it to like Sleepaway Camp because it is so extreme in everything that you kind of just have to sit back and be like, really, they let these people film this? I mean, it, it's it's bonkers weird. And actually, um, you know, uh, Friday the 13th, part five, uh, I there there's a, a it might be a stretch, but I do kind of connect it to the Blair Witch Project in a weird way. So, um, yeah, happy to get into that a little bit later. So, awesome. yeah, no, I'm excited to hear those those parallels and not to go on too much of a Friday the 13th tangent. But I'm really glad that Paramount stepped in and cut that movie in the way that they did, because it sounds like they went out there and just shot a full on porno. Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, especially yeah, since like the it, director came from that world, it's uh, <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's a very hard watch. But um, now, like, it, I just kind of fixate on like the absurdity of it all, and it makes it much more enjoyable. It, it's a it's a very silly movie, but uh, oh yeah, yeah, and and respect on the uh, predator thing. I think uh, I. God, I'd say probably it's at least twice a year, probably yeah. twice every couple months for me. I, I, I can if it's you know, it's one of those movies. If it's on, I'm going to stop and watch it. If I turn it on, I'm not going to get anything done around the house because I'm going to sit and watch it. So, well, it's it's not in the book. And I think we could make a very good case for it <laughs> for it going well, in there. Yeah, exactly. You guys can because uh, you, you guys, if, if you don't agree something's in the book, you can replace it, right? Let's get uh, Predator in there at some point. Somehow. I mean, McTiernan, McTiernan needs needs some love, right? Yeah. So, um, so we kind of we, we've been talking about Friday the Thirteenth. So I just wanted to, and I I just want you like your brief like I'm sure you haven't delved into all the special features, but how was that Friday the Thirteenth box set? Okay, so I, I was actually shocked because uh, it arrived yesterday. It wasn't supposed to arrive until this Tuesday when it officially comes out. Yeah. And so, legit, uh, my wife's been expecting some stuff in the uh, in, I in saw the, your in the mail. Phone. Yeah, was great. well, she was expecting. I bring in this box, and she's like, "Oh, is that the air purifier?" And I was like, "Oh, probably, whatever." And I opened it up, and it's the uh, like uh, Shout Factory, Scream Factory. The way they packaged it was legit like i open it up and it's the the new friday the 13th box set and i it's still in the plastic i'm waiting uh we're supposed to actually i think get some like thunder and lightning or something tomorrow it seems kind of like the perfect time to uh to rip that open and and dive in but i'm also kind of the sucker because i had i think i've purchased every version of friday the 13th uh, the series that has come out on blu-ray so i yeah, I've wasted a lot of money on it, but this this uh, this rendition of it looks legit. Like they they put a lot of uh, effort into it, and I I love Scream Factory and Shout Factory's discs, so I'm looking yeah. forward to jumping in. Um, is yeah, there... I've, I've met a couple of those guys, and they are they're fucking legit. They're they're cool guys. I I talked to them about their release of Dog Soldiers, and they got a little bit of heat for that because of the the poor picture quality on that. But like, you can only work with what you've got, you know. And so yeah. I. I kind of gave them a little bit of love and told them, hey, man, I know you guys are getting some shit for this, but you guys did a bang up job. I don't know if you've you've seen that Dog Soldiers. I, I have that. Not, but yeah, I have that yeah. that version that you're talking about. And uh, uh, um, my wife and I uh, last year, like pretty much where every Friday where we were just watching a, a movie and I'd always pick something scary and Dog Soldiers was one of them. And yeah, like the quality, it's rough, but I mean, it also uh, kind of adds to the charm of it. I think more exactly. so it was uh, my my boss at the time was um, he was Scottish and I was texting him throughout it because I was like, I don't understand what they're saying here because like the accents were so thick and the uh, the dialect, like all the uh, the, the kind of slang that they were using. So I was texting him throughout the movie being like, what does this mean? What does this mean? Or what are they saying here? So uh, but Dog Soldiers, I mean, is great. It's what is it? It's, yeah. it's basically Predator with werewolves and the werewolves are sick yeah. in that yeah. like they're they're intimidating as hell so yeah i love dog soldiers yeah anyway sorry adam i, I go ahead with no. the, the i cut you off no there. no no, no worries no worries um i'm wondering just because of all the people i know you are the the person i know who who enjoys horror films the most and, and knows the most about them so i'm wondering if there's not what you think is the best but uh what your favorite either like what, what's your favorite franchise 
All right. Well, I don't. I don't know if uh, like I'm an expert by any means in, in horror. I love uh, crappy horror. I, I'm a. I grew up in the '80s, and uh, so I've always kind of leaned toward the uh, the the slasher genre. I mean, that's kind of what I was introduced to with Jason and and uh, Freddy and everything. But uh, I mean. Full till it's it's all uh, Halloween. The the Halloween uh, franchise is my favorite by far, um, and it's one of one of two movies that uh, really got me into film. It was I remember I think probably when I was around nine or ten, getting ready to go trick or treating with uh, with uh, my cousins, and uh, we're all sitting on the couch, and the original Halloween was on TV. And there was a moment in it where uh, the music kicked in, the the infamous John Carpenter score. And I watched uh, one of my cousins put her hands over her ears, like she just the music. It was a daytime scene, and she put her hands over her ears, and it just stunned me. I was like, "That's what I want to do at some point." And so it it just, uh, I think um, Halloween just because it was ultimately the trendsetter, right? I mean, you still had uh, before that you had um, you know Black Christmas, Psycho. Uh, everything that influenced it, but Halloween, um, there's just something ab- about it, like the the way it's shot, the the music, and and again, actually, it ties into somewhat of what we're going to talk about tonight too. But being like a, an independent movie that just blew up, and uh, and yeah, I think it was, it was just a scrappy group of filmmakers that that made it happen. And um, sure, the the sequels definitely have their faults, but I'll I'll be damned if they're not like just you know, junk food. I, it's, I, I can't get enough of it. Halloween three is one of the most interesting. No, I, I, I had a grand old time watching that movie. I, I just want to, I'll put it out there. Like, it's not good, but it is weird in a very captivating way. Well, being on Twitter for the podcast, there is a massive cult following for that film in amongst the sort of people that use film Twitter. They fucking love Halloween Part 3, that season of The Witch. Like, it is, there's a fervor around that film, which, I mean, I saw it once about 15 years ago, and I, I can't wrap my mind around why there is so much love for this film, but I maybe I owe it a rewatch. I, I need to I need to actually revisit that one because similar to Friday Five, it's the one I watched the least. And I it, it's been I can't even remember the last time I saw it. And I keep uh, teasing my wife because she's always like, oh, you know, if, if if I'm like, let's watch a Halloween movie. She's like H2O Halloween eight resurrect, which don't <laughs> no no Buster Ron, don't get me started. But I'm always like, let's watch Halloween three. And she's like, I've seen it. I'm like, trust me, you haven't because you would know if you've seen Halloween three, cause it is Definitely. bonkers weird and really out there. So I, it, it, it deserves, I, it, yeah, the, the cult following for that is, uh, is surprising. I, I, again, I need to revisit it, but I don't think I'll jump on that bandwagon too quick, but who knows? I'm on the Friday five bandwagon right now. So things could change. All right. And my, my last question, and I I had to stop my co-host from, from chatting too much before, um, you have a big event coming up. I'm just wondering if you want to just quickly share a little bit about that. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, um, my wife, uh, is pregnant and, um, she is, uh, uh, scheduled for delivery at this point on November 13th. What day of the week is that? A Friday. So, uh, my, uh, my, my little boy might be entering the world on, uh, Friday, November 13th. And, uh, it was funny when we when we heard uh, the news from the doctors. They're like, "Okay, well, we can schedule schedule you on the 11th with uh, a doctor that isn't yours, or we can schedule you on the 13th with your doctor." And I was like, uh, "But then they added this little footnote, like 
I don't know if you're superstitious. I'm like, what, because of the number 13, like whatever. And then I looked at the calendar and I was like, oh, no, we're not superstitious on that. This, <laughs> this seems, this seems perfect. So, uh, so fingers crossed we can uh, make it to that date. Of course it might be flexible, but, uh, but maybe, uh, the, the, you know, Friday the 13th, uh, birth date would be pretty cool for, for my little man. So we'll see. Sorry, I, had to, I I knew that, but it was such I had to lead you, but that yeah, was great. I I, I I appreciate like honestly, anytime like that when I told my mom, I I it, everything is always like yeah, November thirteenth, dot dot dot. It's a Friday, and then everybody like my friends that I've texted or family that I've texted or they just respond back with like, of course, yeah, <laughs> that's fair. So. Well, cool. Well, thank you for for a, a new segment apparently on the show when we have guests on. I'm just gonna just just bombard you with questions um so as we always do at the top of the show uh we're gonna give you some recommends this week uh for things to enjoy during your halloween weekend so Chaz is our guest what do you have all right so uh last weekend i stumbled across a movie on shutter uh it's called uh, scare me and it uh was picked up by shutter before its uh 2020 uh debut at sundance before everything shut down so it had a premiere and uh basically it's um it's about a, a guy that goes out into um, the the mountains and rents a cabin, and he's gonna try to write something. He's a, he wants to be an author, and uh, once he settles in, he runs across uh, um, a lady that is in another cabin about uh, just across the street, and um, she is actually an established author, and so they kind of strike up a, a little conversation, go their separate ways. And then that night, the power goes out, so she comes over to his cabin, and it basically turns into this uh, um, anthology story, but it almost, uh, and Adam, I'd really be curious to see what you think about this, because uh, I think the movie is really entertaining, but it almost would be better as a stage play, because as an anthology, now, there's only five uh, actors, really, in the whole movie, but... As they as they get together, when the power goes out, they start telling each other scary stories. But instead of like a true anthology where, you know, you kind of have the wraparound story and then you'll cut into the segments, they act out the segments and they play the characters. And so what what it does is um, uses a lot of sound effects, which conveniently tie into tonight's movie. Um, But it it really play. it, It seems like it would it might play better as a stage play. But um, what they do with it, it's I mean, it's definitely a a minimalist movie and they use uh, this cabin setting very well. It's shot very well. um, But what's great is watching these actors. uh, It's almost like watching adults play make believe because one will start a story and then the other one kind of jumps in and then they start to play these characters uh, throughout it. It was uh, written and directed by Josh Rubin, who comes from um, kind of a long line of like sketch comedy and whatnot. And it also has um, Aya Cash, who um, is uh, Stormfront in The Boys season two. If anybody out there watches that, she's a new addition. Uh, Their chemistry is awesome. Um, It's it's more of a comedy than a horror movie, I would say, but, uh, there's, there's just some great moments. And again, the sound, it might be a little overlong, uh, that again, I think on the stage would, uh, be much more entertaining to watch. So you got to kind of push through some of it, but, uh, it, it's just overall, whether you love it or hate it, you got to give them credit for, uh, kind of making something uh, with a very small budget and, um, 
yeah, it's just it's it's a fun it's a fun watch. So that's what I would recommend. It's on Shutter. Sweet. Yeah, we're still in the midst of our free Shutter um, trial. So yeah, I'll have to add that to our list. Uh, Ian, what do you have, my friend? Well, I've got a little something that's uh, currently streaming on Prime. Uh, hopefully it still will be by the time this episode goes, but a uh, little film by uh, Bobcat Goldthwaite and uh, a name that, Adam, you might recognize, uh, Lori Oboilis, who was the uh, movement director on I, Daniel Blake. So they uh, co-directed this film together, and it's his, it's Bobcat's take on the found footage genre. Um, so Willow Creek, it's uh, about a couple who uh, decide to go out to a place that is a, uh, an infamous sort of uh, location where Bigfoot was once spotted. It's the site of a very famous, or in this world anyway, a very famous sighting of Bigfoot and filming. And there's a whole sort of community that has gathered around this sighting of the Bigfoot, and they've kind of made it their town, sort of the, the, the thing that would attract people to their town. Um, and then things obviously start to, because it's a found footage film, things start to go off the rails quite quickly. It's, it's made very apparent to them that they're not welcome there once they start going off of the trails. Um, I don't want to tip my hand too early about how I feel about the Blair Witch Project, but I think there, as far as the found footage genre goes, I think there are moments in this movie that one-up the Blair Witch. The final shot in the film is an 18-minute one-take, which is honestly... It comes out of nowhere, and it's quite breathtaking. This is honestly, from end to end, this is probably one of the worst recommends that I think I've ever done on this show, because the first 30 minutes is fucking garbage. Like, <laughs> almost unwatchable garbage. But then the movie, about 40 minutes in, takes this turn where things get a bit more sinister, and you actually... I found myself really sucked into this thing, and then, well, like I said, when that 18-minute wonder comes along, I was hook, line, and sinker. I'm into this thing. And, of course, being that it's a Bobcat Goldthwait film, the film, obviously, it takes a it takes a very dark, darkly funny turn in those last few moments, because his sense of humor is just on a different level. I don't know if either of you have seen World's Greatest Dad with Robin Williams or... Uh, God Bless America, which had uh, I, one of the Mur I can't remember which one, but one of the one of the Murray siblings was I think in it's, that. Is that it Joel Murray? Is, yeah, that film is dark as shit. Yeah, it's God just, Bless America. Yeah, God Bless America <laughs> yeah. is yeah. a fucking hoot, man. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. oh, so you? I'm sorry, and you said uh, Willow Creek's on Prime right now. Yes. Yeah. Because I yeah I have not seen that, but I've I've heard uh, Bobcat. Uh, I think. That guy, yeah, like going from like what he was in Police Academy to what he is now. There, there's quite a a, a journey he's taken, and his films, yeah. love him or hate him, he, you're, I think you're one hundred percent right. He has such a dark, dark perspective. Yeah, he's he's a very unique vision, and I love. I I listen to him on. I'm a huge sucker for Mark Maron and the WTF podcast. I've been slowly working my way through his archives, and I heard him on Maron, and he is such a great interviewer or interviewee rather just listening to him talk and his sort of uh experience with the san francisco comedy scene and his turn into directing you know tv shows and stand-up specials and 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 films he's definitely not the kind of interview that you would expect but a really fascinating person to listen to cool nice Great. on my list for sure 
Um, so I, I gotta say, I, I really wanted to do like a true horror recommendation for this. I've watched a lot of shit over the last week. I mean, uh, we watched, uh, I think it's called the awakening, which I believe is, um, uh, Amityville, like the Amityville awakening one. No, no, no. Okay. It's, um, I can't think of her name. She's in, uh, she's in the town. She's in Vicky. Oh, Re- no, fuck. I don't know. Her name. Rebecca Hall. That's right. She's deleting it. So is Dominic West. It's like an old school this place is haunted. She's like a ghost hunter. Um, it's a good movie up until like the last 10 minutes. And it's like, it just leaves such a bad taste in your mouth. We just went, we just watched all of the nightmare on Elm street movies, which are eh, new nightmares. Great. I actually really like new nightmare. Thank you. Um, thank you. But it's not been, it's not been a pleasant. I watched the ninth configuration last night, which is not good. It's just not a good movie. Um, I, dude, I fucking told you that movie is garbage. <laughs> no, 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 I'm just saying, like, I, I'm prepping because we're doing a, a below freezing tomorrow. That movie is just so bad. Um, but so my recommend, it's it's not a horror film, but it is certainly um, uh, can be tense at times. And I'd never seen it. And what a what a mind fuck. Um, so my recommend is Under the Skin. Um, yes. Oh, Jonathan. Fucking movie so good. Jonathan Glazer's. Um, third film his his last film he has something that's uh in pre-production but there's no name for it yet um and this is one that's been on my radar forever i mean i've i've known about its existence uh but i just hadn't watched it and i finally did and i'm not giving this like my full recommend because i'm still working through what it is um and i might give away more than i should but it's hard to talk about this movie um but basically uh scarlett johansson plays a woman in, in quotes and uh, dr- basically drives around Scotland picking up men sort of discovering what it is to be a woman. And as she picks up these men, takes them back to this, what looks like a dilapidated house from the outside. And then on the inside, she, go, they just go to this other world place. And she lures these men into this liquid and then goes back and gets more. The, I. This movie is it's kind of confounding in a way, but also it's so beautiful. The it, the cinematography is great. Visually, it's very stunning. I I, I don't want to. Uh, I'm not demeaning Scarlett Johansson because I know she's had roles where she's spoken more, but she's captivating to watch. Um, there's a scene that takes place uh, by the water, which will kind of haunt you, especially if you if you have kids. There's just like this tense fucking scene by the by these waves i i if you if you can hear my stumbling it's because i don't know how to really describe this movie you just kind of have to see it um but it is crazy good ian i you've seen it yeah yeah uh, so just a little bit of background on under the skin i did under the skin as a double feature at the sundance in the u district when it was still owned by sundance i think it's owned by amc now but I did that on like a Sunday morning, double featured with Dom Hemingway, which I have talked about kind of endlessly on the. And what a fucking weird double feature! But I'm really yeah. glad that we did. <laughs> I'm really glad that we did Under the Skin first, and then Dom Hemingway after, because the other way around would have been completely fucked. <laughs> uh, Under the Skin, like you said, the cinematography is fucking knockout. And Scarlet, I think it's. I honestly think given that Scarlett Johansson doesn't really have a lot to do other than to provide a sort of unsettling 
personification. Like she, with what little she had to do in that film, she does volumes with. Yeah. And it's it's not a knock against her really at all. I think the the movie is so it's so vague, not in a bad way, but it's so open to interpretation that you really could sort of you could see a, a number of different stories and that she's sort of a, a placeholder for X. Like it's, I, I've heard like, you know, sort of women's rights, me too, to immigration to, I, I just, I, there's so many ways that you could sort of look at it. And it's, it's just this fascinating film that I, I know I seriously need to just to, to rewatch to really kind of cement it. Cause it's, it's a lot to take. It's not even a long movie, but it's a lot to take in. When did it? The, when did I it come the out? The immigration spin on it is definitely on point, and the fact that it's a Jonathan Glazer film, there is no way in hell you would ever associate this film with the same guy that made Sexy Beast, and it's fucking yeah. crazy. That speaks it, to uh, his power as a director. Yeah, yeah. It was twenty uh, twenty thirteen. Twenty thirteen. Okay, yeah. No, I haven't seen it yet, but I, I recall hearing about it. So, dang, got yeah. uh, got another one on my list. It's yeah, it's a it's a trippy film. Um. So cool. So great. So uh, recommends this week for all of you out there. We have Scare Me, which is on Shudder, which, by the way, anybody can get a like a free trial of Shudder. So you should do it because there's a lot of cool shit on there. Um, Ian, you had Willow Creek and I had Under the Skin. Um, but now we're going to get to it. We're going to talk about the Blair Witch Project. Now, uh, Ian, Chaz and I were talking off mic and I, I want to know, do you have a first a first viewing story? To go with the Blair Witch Project, uh, not uh, not one that's particularly fascinating. All right, so Chaz, we were talking about this, and I, I wanted to know what yours was. Yeah. Okay. So um, my uh, so it came out in 1999, and uh, that was uh, my freshman year of college. And so uh, when I first got to college, I was amazed because they had uh, advanced screenings and I'd always heard of them uh, in high school and stuff, but I was like, Oh my God, I can see movies months before they come out. And so um, throughout the year I started to realize, well, they're obviously handing out more passes than there are seats so they can pack the auditorium. So I started uh, volunteering to ensure that I'd have a seat for any type of advanced screening they had. So um, it was uh, my spring quarter and uh, they were doing an advanced screening of Blair Witch Project. That's, um, that would have been about a month and a half before it even came out in theaters. And so I had heard some rumblings about it, but again, this is before the internet is, or was what it is now. Yes. And so they were pushing it as real, as real. And so I recall like the day of the screening, uh, it was during the week of finals, and uh, a buddy of mine and myself, we volunteered to ensure that we would get seats. And we're there. Um, Artisan had sent all this promo stuff that we had to go hang around campus. So we had, like, the missing uh, posters that they had uh, made for Sundance, and we were putting them up around campus. And uh, it was about 10 minutes before the screening, and, uh, and all the volunteers had kind of gathered, uh, getting ready to pack up everything and go to the theater. And I was convinced it was real. Like at that point, it still hadn't come out. They were still kind of teeter tottering on like how, you know, this is real, this is real, or is it, or is it? So 10 minutes before uh, I saw the movie, I was told by um, a representative that was there from Artisan, no, it's not real. I was like, okay, fine. Went to the theater. It's packed. Like the theater that they, the auditorium that they had uh, seated probably 
450 students or whatever. And, uh, and of course, like free movie, like you're a college student, that's like a date night, you know, everybody's, everybody's coming there, like get a free movie. And, uh, so it was packed and these, these screenings like had, you know, I'd say a third of it was like people who just really love movies and wanted to go see them. And then the other two thirds were kind of party goers or whatever. And so again, 10 minutes before I hear that it's not real, but as I'm watching this movie, I'm like, are you sure it's not real? Are you positive this isn't real? And there were just moments throughout it uh, that I'm sure we'll address as we go through it. But just to hear a crowd, it was it was amazing to hear people laughing and then just a tidbit of information or a sound or something. And 450 college students would just shut the fuck up. And like, how do you do that? And I mean, that that's amazing. And by the time it hit the end um, and... It w- there was just a hush in this crowd and one person in the very back just went, Oh shit. And, you know, kind of got a little bit of like, it was more of an uncomfortable laughter because everybody was kind of like, what did we just see? Yeah. And, um, and then I think probably about a month later is when they started doing like the, uh, uh around the country, like five cities, they started the slow release and then it became what it became. But it was probably one of the most special movie experiences of my life because I got to kind of see it under the guise that is this real? Is it not? It was just like kind of a pure viewing of it versus like after kind of the hype hit. And I think a lot of people saw it, it received a lot of backlash, but I got to just see it in its purest form or as close as it could be because it had debuted at Sundance, but it was I can say after that movie, my buddy and I um, that volunteered with me, he crashed uh, at at my place that night because we had like a final the next day. And walking back, every tree rustle, like we were just like, nope, fuck this shit. Like, and and it took a lot uh, like to scare me. But again, I was growing up on slashers where you kind of see everything, right? Like the whole point of slashers is here's the monster, here's the gore, here's everything versus Blair Witch that was just kind of all this mental mind fuck and we were walking back and you know at 19 years old we're like oh man we're tough or t-. i was like fuck this like leaves rustling in front of me i was like nope i'm running back to my dorm at that point so yeah just uh it was one of the most special movie experiences of my life just like being with an audience and experiencing it before like the hype hit so yeah, yeah. so i'll try to keep mine brief um so i remember uh, so i was 12 in the summer that this came out and I remember, like, on on MTV, when MTV was still, like, the epicenter of pop culture, they had the trailers, and it was, like, that unused footage of, like, lawyers in court being, like, you, like, basically, like, you know, you can't show this, like, we found this, we found this video, and, like, again, just the marketing of making this feel like this is real. So I'm 12, I'm already kind of a nerdy little cinephile, and I'm at my dad's house that weekend, and the fit, like, my dad, my stepmom, and my, my sister and my stepsisters were all, like, we want to go see The Sixth Sense because that had just come out. And that was the movie that also had this like, oh, shit, the ending. But I'm this 12-year-old being like, yeah, I kind of want to see Blair Witch Project. I was really adamant about it. So we got, we got to the, the, um, the Regal here in Marysville, and we got there, and I asked my dad. I was like, hey, can you just buy me a ticket for Blair Witch? I'll go see that, and then you guys can go see The Sixth Sense or whatever. So I'm, I'm 12. This movie is... Uh, it's kind of in the middle of the day. It's not a late showing. There's maybe only 15 people in it. It's Marysville and, and probably just hadn't, you know, not a big enough market for that kind of a movie. But so I'm watching this movie and I get to the end of it 
And I, I, I mean, I'm 12. No internet. I don't know anything. I think this is real. And I'm pretty sure I've just watched people die at the end of this movie. And so my... My 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 dad and everybody come out of the booth and they're and they're talking about the twist. Oh my god, that was so amazing, right? And like my dad asked me how it was mine, and I I was like I don't want to talk about it. I I would prefer not to talk about the movie that I just saw. It was like was it bad? I'm like no, but I really <laughs> I need I need some time. Um. So and I mean I, I we we've touched at the marketing and I know we will as we go through it, but yeah, I mean. The brilliant marketing. I mean, maybe unsung heroes are like just the, the marketing team at Artisan. Yeah. I mean, just fucking, yeah. Um, okay, so anyways, cool. The Blair Witch Project. Uh, written, directed, conceived uh, by Daniel Myrick and Ed, uh, Eduardo Sanchez. They were uh, film students at the University of Central Florida. Our cast, uh, Heather, Michael, and Josh, played by Heather Donahue, Michael Williams, and Joshua Leonard. Um uh, there are no other films by these directors in the book. Not surprising, but, um, you know, this kind of took off. Um, when it comes to accolades, I thought this was fucking fascinating. So, um, you know, it, it won the Award of Youth at, at Cannes. It lost um, the International Confederate of Art, Art Cinema's Award and also the Golden Camera. But at the Independent Spirit Awards, it won Best First Feature. Uh, at the PGAs, it won Most Promising Producer. And then it was up for some Razzies. It won Worst Actress at the Razzies and lost Worst Film to Wild Wild West. There's also a, a thing called the Stinker's Bad Movie Awards, uh, where it won Biggest Disappointment, uh, lost Worst Actress to Melanie Griffith uh, in Crazy in Alabama, and also, again, lost Worst Picture to Wild Wild West, which is bad. It's That's not a good movie at all. But this movie... This movie made worldwide about two hundred and fifty million dollars, and was U.S. It was the tenth highest grossing film that year uh, in terms of the of the U.S. gross. Um, So I just I kind of find all of that. It's hard to you know all the praise and 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 acclaim versus the no this movie's a pile of shit. Um, Yeah. Uh, this movie is not on the IMDb Top 250. It currently has an 86% critical score with a 56% audience score. Um, Ian, did you have any critical things that you found that you wanted to highlight? I did. I had uh, a little something. Well, I obviously, on this show, we have a, a massive amount of respect for Roger Ebert, so I took a look at his review. Uh, he gave it four stars. I had a little just piece from there where he said this movie is like a celebration of rock-bottom production values, of how it doesn't take bells and whistles to scare us. But um, Andrew Saris from The Observer had something that I thought was slightly more interesting to say. Uh, He said, Myrick and Sanchez's The Blair Witch Project represents the ultimate triumph of the Sundance scam. Make a heartless home movie, get enough critics to blurb in near unison, quote-unquote scary, and watch the suckers flock to be fleeced. This fictional documentary within a pseudo-documentary form may be the most overrated, underfinanced piece of film to come down the pike in a long time. And incidentally, when did Scary become the highest commercial accolade a film could receive? Not that The Blair Witch Project struck me as particularly scary, even by infantile standards. Where is the suspense? Where is the involvement? Where is the identification? 
We know from a printed forward that the three young filmmakers are doomed, and by the time I got to know them a little, I didn't much care what happened to them. Oh, wow. Damn. I don't, <laughs> I don't know exactly how to respond to all of that right now. Um, it actually seems fitting. I mean, between Roger Ebert and that review and yeah, it's, this movie seems so polarizing. I think, uh, I think you get people that are like, yeah, it was a big piece of bullshit and you get people maybe like my nerdy ass that are just like, Oh God, I love the, I love this movie. I love, uh, that you don't see anything necessarily. It's yeah, it's, it's a polarizing flick. Well, so let's, let's just briefly talk about it. And again, like if you, if you were to watch this movie, even if you hadn't for the first time, you really kind of get it right there with the opening little, uh, the little title card, which basically says three people went out in the woods in, in Maryland, Maryland, uh, to to film a documentary. Uh, their three years later or whatever, their footage was found. This is what they filmed. So like that's it. These people are going out to investigate this, um, the idea of this Blair witch out in uh, Burkittsville or formerly Blair. And it really is them uh, getting ready. We, we meet them before they get out to the woods and then they get out there. And again, without I, I'm glossing this over so we can talk about it. But that shit starts to go wrong pretty quick, uh, ultimately leading to what we can imagine is their demise. Um, so we've 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 talked about the marketing uh, a fair amount in terms of of this being presented as. Uh, real footage this really happened um you know the actors being told basically can you you know stay out of sight as long as possible which lasted a while before eventually they did the talk show round and stuff um so i i don't it, it's hard to to just jump into talking about it because well, okay here, here's okay maybe this this is something that's not quite about the movie itself so we'll, we'll just get into it like what do we think of the, and I'm not using this in a, in a derogatory way, but like the actors in the movie, like how, how do we feel about them as characters and, and or them as, as them as actors? Like, how do we feel about their performances in the movie? It, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, I think it, it's, it's interesting. Cause I, the performances I think are, they can be quote unquote annoying, but given the circumstances that they're in and especially the way that this movie was filmed and what the, the, creators the directors the producers put them through which i don't think nowadays you can get away with like by any means because it was intense but you know i i just realized after uh revisiting it this week i don't think i've actually watched the whole movie in 20 years i've seen like bits and pieces here but like sitting down and watching it i i just had a different perspective because i remember a lot of people saying like oh god heather's annoying yes. josh is you know yes, like heather's all... very annoying and all this and yeah she she can be but so can mike so can josh like it, it the whole movie is very antagonistic uh between the characters and then you kind of hear about how the filmmakers put it together and how much they had to cut because of how bad they were everybody was going at it um I think it, it's it feels like um, it's this descent into madness throughout like the the over the course of the eight days that it takes place or whatever. But I feel and especially now, maybe in the times we're living in, you know, just like kind of being sheltered or like quarantined or whatever. It's kind of what they are. And you see them just start nitpicking at each other and griping. And yeah, it can be frustrating. But I also think that uh, Mike's character, who is kind of a comedic relief a little bit throughout it um 
interjects and like there'll be like these little breaths or whatever but then all of a sudden something happens and they're griping again and i mean just think about it if you were in that situation and stuck in the rain and all this and you couldn't find your way out like how would you act what would you be like so i think it's kind of a realistic portrayal of what this how people would act in that situation especially because none of them you don't get the the idea that they're all super close friends to begin with oh yeah well, it know? seems like i mean from the little that we get like you i josh uh and and heather may know each other but mike se- it's like seems like oh, hey you're mike oh nice to meet you good think you could you know glad you could sign me up for this thing yeah there it certainly seems like the familiarity the film the familiarity level is pretty low between them. Uh, Ian, what do you think about the performances? I I don't necessarily have anything against the performances in it. My my struggles with the film come down to characterization. I think this is a kind of based on what the final product ended up being. I think it uh, points to a kind of weak script. In the sense that I'm sure there wasn't... It sounds like there wasn't much of a script to begin with. It was like a 35-page outline. And then the actors who are, you know, at the time, I know that um, uh, Josh Leonard has gone on to have a bit more of a career than the other two, but they're, they're all amateurs. And so we have to kind of give them a little bit of leeway with that. But it, it feels like there's a, there's a lot of holes missing in the characterizations of them uh mike i really like i i agree with the the sort of comic relief that comes with his character especially the scene where he talks about throwing away the map and just laughing his ass off about it i think that's one of the strongest moments in the film uh but the 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 dynamic between heather and josh it sounds like they cut a sort of romantic entanglement between them and i think uh i do think that was a a mistake uh because they're heather heather and uh heather and josh come across as slightly two-dimensional to me there's not enough there's not enough meat on the bones of their characterization for me to i kind of agree with that little bit that i read from the observer is there i why do i care about these people See, and that's that's so funny, and that's I, I, I love when we kind of disagree on shit like this because I, it's, for the the limited amount of time that we see them, I, I I think we actually get pretty big peaks and valleys, and I I really like the way that they're not really overplaying anything. Um, I you know I I listened to a bit of an interview with with Heather, and you know she what what drew her to the movie in the first place was how open it was going to be she she was going to thrive on the fact that i we get to improvise a lot of what's going on um which i know i I myself like i know we we talked a little bit on the show before with different films about like you know certain actors only getting certain parts of the script so when they when it gets to it like it's a big surprise for them and obviously this movie is just full of that like here's a map and you're going to basically be given new shit to to deal with the further you go um I had a painful realization watching this movie. I am unfortunately so much like Mike, it, it pains me. Um, there's one point when they've, uh, they have to, they're like, it's the creek. They come to the same creek to cross, and he, he yells, oh, boy. I'm like, oh, fuck, man, that's me. I would do that. I, the, a lot of the way, that his, his handling. I love of, that you're giving me an out to call you a sarcastic asshole. 
I am. I am. That's my problem. Um, like when he starts singing America, America, God shed your grace on them. Like, fuck me. I would do it. When he says, fuck you, God, I, the whole time I'm like, this is bad because I'm watching me up there. I would be doing these things. Um, and maybe that because I, 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 I have not seen this movie in a very long time. And, and yes, this this because of my initial viewing has sort of just like wedged itself permanently into my brain but watching it again i was so much more honestly smitten with these people in the little bit that we get like i know like josh gets gets mad at times but i feel like unlike unlike mike who gets who gets upset really fast you know he just kind of gets to it the way it's like why why what is this stuff what why is what is this slime on my like what the fuck did i do and he's i don't know i i really do like the triangle there I don't. For me, it works. I I really like what they got going on there. I was just gonna say, uh, just uh, to build on the uh, improvisation part of it. I think, like, just credit to the actors because even, I understand, like, given the situation and and kind of the scenes that they included, because the initial cut of this movie was two and a half hours yeah. of just like the found footage stuff. And okay, I I think the movie even now could be tightened up a little bit, but then they wouldn't hit like the feature length of like eighty minutes or whatever it's supposed to be. But Credit to the actors for, and, and as you said, Ian, yeah, I think the it, it was like a 35-page, basically an outline, yeah. and then they were just given like GPS coordinates, like go here, go here, and and basically make up everything. So from a writing standpoint, the, the, the writers got off easy. They're like, here, go do this, and like gave all the work to the actors, and I think they did great. Like, and there's, you guys had mentioned the map, like the Mike kicked the map that wasn't scripted or anything he kicked the map into the the um creek and thought the other everyone else had seen it and no one else had not even the directors knew he was going to do that so yeah. like these little moments that they that they chose to do or like how they chose to interact i think is great it, it's i think it's a little unfortunate that pretty much the entire movie is conflict but again i don't know what how else you would do that in in these circumstances like there's nothing but conflict but again with mike he'll kind of come in here and there and just like say something funny or give you like at least a beat of relaxation before everybody gets pissed at everybody again but yeah those are i'm gonna i, I don't want to come across as deliberately combative but some of that is a lot of my problem with this movie is the sense that so my what I have is I am at odds with myself is that I think that this film is one too long, even at 81 minutes, 82 minutes. But also, as I, as I mentioned with the characterization, there's not enough meat on the bones. I feel like we go to conflict too quickly. Yeah. yeah fair. Yeah. Very fair. Yeah. Very fair. But I, I do love the, I, in theory, I do love the idea of an improvisational script. Uh, the idea that you're making things up on the fly. It's just this film comes across to me i i understand that the idea of it is to feel amateur but that's also not really working in their favor either because amateur is exactly that i know you're not supposed well, to I know use i know you're not supposed to use the word in the definition of the word that you're defining but i mean this film is just amateur from end to end and that can be uh it can be a taxing experience well, well so amateur that um uh, Josh, who is the de facto filmmaker, they actually kind of keep it in the movie too. Didn't quite know how to focus on the on the uh, is it the sixteen millimeter? Yeah. 
and um, they they keep it in there. He's like, I had a hard time today trying to focus on you, and like, I you know, it's hard to know like if they're students or like you know maybe a bit more of the backstory. Like this certainly seems like a maybe they're all college students, and this is a this is a project for for a, for class or something. It, I I doubt this is professional, but I I just love the fact that he legit didn't know how to quite focus on it. And it, it, they keep it in the movie. Well, what's, what's, what's great about that. I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, right before that scene, when they're in the car and she's ta- she's calling them out on like meters versus feet. Yeah. And right before that, they filmed the interview with, uh, Mary Brown, like the, the, the older lady that uh, claims to have seen the Blair witch or whatever at, at her house. And that whole interview is out of focus because he was shooting in meters. Yeah. So like they bring, but in a weird way, it kind of works because that interview with Mary Brown, even though it's out of focus, it adds this weird, like eerie feeling to it. Like, and plus just that, that, um, that actor is super creepy and like the way she delivers the story and, and her, and her mannerisms. But, uh, but yeah, I think, um, it's it's funny because I think uh, Joshua Leonard also claimed to be kind of a videographer to get into the movie or whatever, and then they give him this camera and yeah, he did not know how to use it. He broke the camera too, from yeah. what I understand. So yeah. Oh man, this is I'm I'm definitely going to be the outlier on this episode then because in a circumstance like that, I would ask: is that is that a happy accident or is that the filmmakers not doing their fucking job? Oh, I'm I'm sure I'm I'm sure that the filmmakers could have done more. Um, it, it's tough though, because, and cause I agree. I do think that this is not the best produced movie. I think that they got a distributor and the campaign that took off. I think, I do think made this a bigger deal. I mean, a- absolutely. Um, I think there's like, and I, and I, again, like the actor in me loves this idea of here. Basically here's a character. We're going to, who knows what we'll keep. So basically you're acting the whole time. What was their code word? Taco. I think is what I read. Taco taco and bulldozer. Yeah. So, and like, to me, that's like, that's an actor's dream. That's awesome. But, but I, but I also see your point. Like, and it sounds like, like they did so much casting. Like they spent a long time casting this movie. Yes. You would think they would have maybe done, had, them actually test out filming with it that probably would yeah yeah the put a put a 16 millimeter camera in his hand and make sure he can actually shoot yep. 16 millimeter <laughs> no i won't i will not disagree on that at all <laughs> yeah. sure yep um i wanted to talk a little bit about those the people they interview uh for for one specific reason um because you know i think the not just the town folk but the three the three actors themselves the acting is so subtle like the two guys fishing like, I feel like I know these people, right? Like, I feel like they're just like, I don't feel like anybody is performing at all. But the reason I want to bring that up is there's the guy that's in like the gas station that they end up kind of pulling into the interview. They end up interviewing him. I, and I'm, I'm seriously, I'm getting, I'm getting kind of goosebumps because when the, him saying this idea of, I heard that they, they made one face the corner so that, that they wouldn't see the other one being killed is the best plant in a, no, okay I, I don't mean definitively but like one of the best plants in a movie ever because when she comes down the stairs at the end of the movie I know I'm jumping around here but when she comes down the stairs and he is facing the corner I've seen this movie before 
I saw it two nights ago, and I literally, the hairs on my arm are standing. That is one of the creepiest and, like, well-earned scares, like, of, of all time. I, I fucking, it, to this day, still scares the shit out of me. I think that's a, that's, that's a great point. Uh, sorry, Ian, just real quick, like building off that, because um, the great thing is, even if you didn't pick up on that earlier in the movie with the guy saying like, oh, he made one kid look in the corner while uh, the other one was killed. Um, at the end of the movie, when you see Mike standing in the corner, even if you didn't pick up on that piece of information, Heather is yelling at him and he is not turning around. Yeah. So it's it, it's just even if you didn't pick up on that. But I, that was one of the things I had. Uh, picked up on when I originally saw it. And when I saw that at the end, I swear to God, I don't think I've ever held my breath longer. I was like, Oh my God, like this, it was, it was such a plan. And from what I understand that was added after the Sundance cut, like they went back and added that little piece in to kind of connect it to the end. Okay. And I think that's one of the, it's so subtle. It's so subtle. And what's great about when they're interviewing the townspeople is that everybody has a little bit of a different story. Like nothing adds That's up. Was, thank yeah. you. Yes. Nothing, and which is like true folklore because everybody has like the, you know, Bloody Mary or Candyman or anything. Like there's always variations and everybody had a variation of it. So it makes it like, oh God, this isn't real because there's not a consistent storyline. Yeah. But then you get to that end point and you're like, oh shit, no, there is like some through lines here and it's uh, it's it's a nice little just subtle plant and you're not going to, like, are you going to take any of these these townspeople serious? Yeah. Because they're all like pretty eccentric or, or whatever, but I I think that well, that plant is so great. And they're all given equal weight. This idea, mm -hmm. like the, the, the fishermen talk about her floating over the water. We hear from, from Mary Brown that she she has the, the, the horse yeah. hair, that kind of thing. And you're hearing all of this and yeah, it, it is, I mean, there's no reason to think that any one of those is more important or more accurate than the other one. Um, especially because I think we know from the purpose of their documentary that they're investigating a myth. They're investigating the idea of, of this thing. Um, sorry, Ian, you were going to say something earlier. Oh, no, that's uh, there's a couple of things I want to address there. Now that we're kind of jumping around a little bit is uh, Adam, you can attest to my feelings about foreshadowing and when it works <laughs> and when it doesn't. And I do, I do think that the foreshadowing in this film is one of its strengths, though I do have to counter during those interviews. And this, again, this is not all on Heather. I don't want to just pile on the fucking uh, uh, talking shit about, about Heather Donahue, but the directors should have really reeled her in. There's one thing that I cannot stand in documentary, quote-unquote documentary-style filmmaking, is when you're interviewing a subject, how about you shut the fuck up and not repeat every other word they say and just let your fucking interview subject just talk that is and i get that's the point she's a student filmmaker she's kind of learning on the fly as you go but uh hey how about you shut the fuck up yep <laughs> fair enough <laughs> agreed it, it it is it is such a fucking i know it's a nitpicky pet peeve thing and Again, I mean, I shouldn't, I shouldn't talk so much shit about Heather Donahue. I know as a, as an, as an actress outside of the character, whether you find her annoying or not, I know she got kind of the short end of the stick because, uh, you know, ninety percent of uh, of movie moviegoers are fucking morons and they can't separate an actor from their character. And so when she was out on the street, people would just lay into her. And I think, uh, you know, as much as I do want to praise 
the marketing through 2020 eyes, we have the ability to look back. And Adam, thank you so much for lending me the 1999, the best year in film book. Or, or sorry, what's the, the subject? It's 1999. Best movie year ever. Yes. I, that chapter was fantastic. I can't wait to to go through it and, and delve deeper into to some of the other films that are in there. But I think, I think what that book does is highlight just kind of how short-sighted the ad campaign was, you know, going onto IMDb and declaring that the actors were missing, presumed dead. Like you're really fucking with these people's careers. And the fact that I think, uh, I don't, I, I do have an unsung hero and we don't do it every episode, but every once in a while we'll do, um, we'll do the, the weakest, the weakest link of the film. And, I I am in two minds. I'm kind of conflicted because Artisan, they obviously did a fantastic job with the marketing campaign from one perspective. And I think uh, while I'm talking about weak links, I will go out of my way and I will say that the unsung heroes of this film are the post-production sound team. They turned around and they I think they bought the film for 1.1 million and then they spent another 300,000 on a on a decent uh, post-production sound mix, which this film clearly needed. Uh, but there's a as I, as I said, there's a, a short-sightedness to just how much they fucked the actors over going forward in their careers. I, I, I get it. You, you want to sell this thing as being realistic, but at the same time, reading in the book that when the film crossed the 100 million mark, all they did was send them a fruit basket. Like, how fucking disrespectful is that? <laughs> oh, I just, I just made your company. Like, Artisan was a nothing bullshit little independent label and this film put Artisan on the map, and for the three or four years before they got bought out by who was it, Sony, I think they got bought out. I can't remember who they got bought out, bought out by, but the strength of this film is the three actors, and without those three actors, you don't have the movie. And so, I don't know, maybe pay a little more respect to them than just sending them a fucking fruit basket when you are just, like, lining your pockets. I'm, I'm of two minds of that. Uh, because a- as an actor... Yeah, I mean, yes, of course. I mean, that's you can credit you can credit uh, Sanchez and and Myrick for the idea, sure. And Artisan obviously owned the rights, um, but yes, I agree. And and like the the time and commitment and and you know probably mental torture they went through to make this movie. Absolutely, I I totally agree. There's a moment, um, uh, I forget when it is. They're they're outside. I think they've just run out of the tent, and you can see their breath. I mean, it's. It's cold. I mean, they filmed this in October, so I get it. I mean, they they were out there. They were doing it. It's unfortunate because what you're saying is is to is to basically give executives a, a lot more heart than I think they actually have. Um, because unfortunately, what I'm going to throw back at your face is they all signed contracts, and yeah, I I, I get no, no, that. No, no, no. But I I I, no, I totally get that, and. The, the fruit basket thing is like, I almost like at that point, don't send me anything like, yeah. don't, don't do yeah. that, you know? And, and it sucks because, you know, it seems like, you know, it, they, they almost weren't allowed to go out and about and market them like self market themselves until like it, it had already kind of hit its crest and was coming down. Had they had the chance. Yeah, I mean, to they, go on... they blocked them from going on the tonight show, right? Yeah. Which would have like cemented their careers like that i mean not so much now because there's like 78 fucking late night shows but back in the day when there was only three or four that could make or break a career 
for sure. Um, and yeah, I, so I mean, it, it is it is unfortunate, you know, that they they didn't get more for their their contributions in the film. Um, that that is not a great legacy to leave behind for well, sure. From what I understand, I mean, like they made a they did make some money on the back end. Uh, not nearly as much as the the producers and the directors, and that's one of the things that's that. I mean, it's so funny to hear that. Like, finally, uh, Universal just said, "Yeah, Jurassic Park made money." You're like, really, motherfuckers? Like, you've made four sequels now. Yes, it made money. Um, Blair Witch made so much money that they couldn't hide it fast enough. So the directors made uh, uh, the writers, directors, producers. They all made a shit ton, and I know the actors made some points on it. Um, and there's been conflicting information. I think uh, Mike uh, claimed at the end of its run he made 300000 off of it. Okay, that seems like a good chunk of change, but not when you've made $250 million. Well, that, and that's there's a stupid little statistic I found that I, I have to bring up. Uh, so apparently in the Guinness Book of World Records, the top budget box office ratio for a mainstream feature film if you take the fact that to make the film, not not everything, but you know the sixty thousand dollars that they kind of agreed upon was what they it took to make the film, and the the two hundred forty eight million dollars, the ratio that for every one dollar spent, ten thousand nine hundred thirty one dollars was made. So we usually do this a little earlier in the show, and to, to pad this money argument, I'm going to ask the question, Adam, do you love lists? And Chaz, I love, do you love lists. lists. I love lists. Oh, I love Lamp. So so we, and I love Lamp too. Or do you really love Lamp, or are you just saying you love Lamp? I love Lamp. I love Lamp. All right. Well, here is a, here's a list uh, to kind of put the money conversation in perspective, Adam, you've already mentioned that for every one dollar it made, you know, ten grand or more. Um, but here is, according to Rotten Tomatoes, as of March 2016, here are the top ten uh, most profitable low-budget indie movies uh, with their budget and their domestic gross. And I'm also gonna this list may take a few minutes, so please bear with me. I'm also gonna throw in the multiplier, you know, the ratio of what it made. Uh, budget to just domestic gross. Uh, so number ten, we have Night of the Living Dead, the original 1968 uh, George Romero one that did 12 million dollars on a 114 thousand dollar budget. Uh, so if you're doing the math, that's uh, 105 times its budget. At number nine, we have Napoleon Dynamite. Ah, okay. uh, that did 46 million on a $400,000 budget. So 111 times it's, uh, it's budget. Again, you guys can feel free to like you, cut me off when I jump do, in with your, no, no, opinions do you, I, I love this. Movies, do you just remember, remember Napoleon dynamite. I mean, do you remember when that was a thing? Yeah. 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 I still think I mean, and, my favorite part of that movie is when uncle Rico says, do you think I could throw a football over those mountains? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Did you guys ever watch the cartoon, the short-lived cartoon? No. They, yeah, there was like a very short-lived, I think it was on Fox, oh that uh, may, I look it up. I, I can't remember how many episodes aired. I tried to watch it. It had um, the original cast doing the voice, and I think All the right. creators yeah. stick with the movie. Yeah, the, 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 the animated series did not did not do it justice. Anyway, sorry, Ian. I, I love this list. I love numbers. No, no, no. Please go, go. No, I want you guys to jump in and give me your. your no, we don't need to talk about Napoleon Dynamite's animated series anymore. <laughs> trust me. Yeah. Uh, um, <clears throat> I'm just going to go on records as to say, fuck that movie. <laughs> 
Uh, number eight, we, we discussed it a little bit earlier in the show, um, and my second favorite film on this list is the original 1978 Halloween. That did $47 million on a $325,000 budget, so 145 times its budget. I mean, we did an episode on that, which I'm I really happy. It was pretty early in it the was, show. It was I early. Think that was season one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm really happy with that one, and I I could go back and watch Halloween again. It doesn't have to be Halloween. I'll watch that whenever. I'll watch that a couple times a year. That is H- Halloween you know, was if, episode six. I think I think what I said was, um, if Texas Chainsaw is the grandmother of that type of slasher horror movie than Halloween is the granddaddy. Those films just go, they just pair so well together. If you want the classic slasher double feature. That's right. You, you like, uh, you like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? I do. I do love Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It is a, again, it's a taxing film. It's not one that you can just, it's not as easy to throw on as the original Halloween, but it is a very, I think, rewarding experience as far as just the shitty production values of that film, just paying off in spades. Oh, you could, you could feel like the conditions they were under when, when oh you God. watched I'm that I'm sweating movie. now thinking about yeah, it. Yeah. Just a I feel quick, like... quick side note, Ian, I'm just curious, what do you think of the remake? I, I haven't seen the remake. I won't. Uh, oh, really? I, I I won't. Uh, I won't limbo under that low bar. Okay. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, but I, the Texas Chainsaw. I think I said uh, on the episode that I felt like the first time. That's one of those movies where my first viewing is so visceral and still so tangible in my memory. I felt like I could smell that movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fun. Yeah. Like I think the first time I saw that movie, actually, like I think I had seen all the sequels, but I had never watched the original until I was got in my teens, and that movie fucked with me. And this is after seeing a oh, bunch yeah. of horror movies. Good God, Toby Hooper, rest in peace. Yeah, man. that movie is balls to the wall. Like it better be on everybody's top ten list yeah. of all time because Definitely. that just oh my God, that movie is. I mean, not top 10 all time, maybe horror all time, but you know, but it's that, that movie is, is something special in the dirtiest, grimiest way. So yeah, Uh, they don't, they don't fucking make them like that no more, man. They they can't make them like that (laughs) anymore. Just like they they, can't. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So my favorite film on this list of the most profitable, low budget indie flicks is uh, number seven is American Graffiti. On a seven hundred and seventy-seven thousand dollar budget, this film did one hundred and fifteen million. At the time, was the most profitable, honestly, the most profitable film of all time. It did one hundred and forty-eight times its budget. I don't know how familiar either of you are with American Graffiti, but that is that for me. Like I know some people consider Jaws a, a very high benchmark of a new wave of blockbuster filmmaking. For me, American Graffiti kind of beat it to the punch. And oh, I don't I, think enough people talk about it in that sort of context. I agree. It's it's a movie I want to revisit. But uh, weirdly enough, like my second favorite genre is I love coming of age. So movies like Stand By Me, Dazed and Confused, which Dazed and Confused you would not have without American Graffiti. I mean, come on. Oh. Like American Graffiti yeah. is Dazed and Confused zero. You know, like it's 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 uh, it's the original. I love love that movie and like the the end where it it became like now it's kind of shtick but like where it shows what happens to the characters and everything american graffiti's brilliant i love american graffiti 
Oh well, Chaz, you've just uh, you've just made a friend for life, man. All right, there we go. <laughs> I was trying to read the room. I was like, I think Ian likes this. I'm yeah. going to say that I like it too. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I do. Okay. I do love well, American Graffiti. Yeah. <laughs> Whether you're blowing smoke or not, man, I'll no, take it. No, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I don't. I don't blow smoke. I, like, hey, I, I, I admit it. I like Friday Five. Who would? Who would do that? Like, oh, unless you're yeah, fucking insane. So. You, you laid it all on the line, man. <laughs> yeah, that. it's you have a, my, my, my heart's my heart's on my sleeve. Let's go. <laughs> Uh, number six is uh, the only documentary film on this list, unless you count number two, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, we'll have a, I think we need to have a very small conversation about number two. But uh, for now, number six, uh, Supersize Me did uh, oh, $11.5 million on a $65,000 budget, which is 170, 176 times its budget. Uh, Supersize Me was a one and done for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I get, I got the point. Um there's actually a special feature. There's a, a deleted scene where uh, to see how food decomposes, they put a bunch of different McDonald's stuff into these mason jars. And then like they, they made homemade fries and like a homemade burger. Like after a day or two, the homemade stuff decomposed like, like it should. It took like a week and a half for the McDonald's cheeseburger to decompose. After two months, the fries hadn't. That's right. And wow. they had to fucking get rid of the jar because the smell was getting fucking atrocious. Uh, and why, that, why the hell wouldn't you leave that in the movie? That's incredible. That's something know. that I, fucking people need to know. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, that really that really stuck with me. I'm not going to lie. The, yeah. I, I went and saw Super Size Me in the theater, and right afterwards, I did go to McDonald's and eat just out of, just out of <laughs> like, whatever. You know, it's preserved as me. I'm trying to be a good-looking corpse. I've failed in other areas, but there we go. Yeah. You got all those preservatives running through your yep. veins. You'll yep. be just Corson. fine. Corson, McDonald's fries pumping through these veins. <clears throat> uh, number five is a movie I know nothing about. Hopefully, you guys can help me out here. It's called The Gallows. It made... Uh, $22.7 million on a $100,000 budget, which is 227 times the budget. I don't know, either of you want to chime was, in on that one? I've, I've heard it's a found footage movie. Uh, I can't recall if it was a Blumhouse movie. It might have been. Um, I, I think that sounds right. The, I know it, I know it was a found footage movie. I think it takes place like in a theater or something, like some uh, high school kids are trapped in a theater. Yeah, it was, it was Blumhouse. Yeah, okay. Uh, so it was, it's a 2015 film that's set in the nineties at a high school. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't seen it, but, uh, that it doesn't surprise me that there's a Blumhouse movie on this list. I've so. fucking heard of this movie. Yeah. It, uh, I remember, yeah, it, it came out and kind of did a, uh, did wicked business, but, right. um, Shit. I didn't see it, which doesn't it. mean anything. I only watch crap, so I should have seen it, but <laughs> there we go. And, and talking of films doing business, I mean, bear in mind, these are just the domestic grosses we're talking about. So when you add the worldwide, these multipliers go up exponentially. Uh, number four is also a found footage film. It's Paranormal Activity. That did $107 million on a $450,000 budget, uh, which is 238 times its budget. Now, the I know this one is in, is it, it's in my version of the book, but I've it, got... It's an still older in the one. book. I don't know if it's 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 still in the book. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it is in the it yeah. is in the okay. The reaction I had to Blair Witch is the reaction that Melissa had to Paranormal Activity because she thought it was real. That's yeah. You know, I think uh, it. Uh, I saw Paranormal Activity. Uh, my wife 
your sister-in-law. Um, she got, uh, when we were living down in uh, Los Angeles, uh, one of her coworkers had a, before it even came out in the theaters, that she had one of the discs. So we, we watched it before the cut that came out in the theaters. And I think they redid the ending, if I'm not mistaken, um, for the theatrical release where, uh, what's his name? I think Micah is his name. He flies at the camera at the end or something like that. So we saw the version before that. Honestly, um, respect to it, uh, Paranormal Activity, obviously, I mean, it kind of replaced Saw with like the annual how like October releases for a while. But yeah. uh, I think, um, I mean, the director of that has even said, you know, props to Blair Witch for uh, for leading it, you know, leading up to this. But I think Paranormal Activity is great. And I, th- I, I haven't seen all the sequels. Some of them. Um, I like the third one a lot. I think I, I kind of recall that one being good. The second one I felt like was really much like the first one it, it kind of felt like yeah. just yeah the third but, one's cool because it's them as kids yeah and, so, yeah, and it's, right. it's the dad who has like an older camera so the way in which we see the footage is it's that to be a bit more creative with how they do it which i i really like yeah yeah, yeah and that's that's it, actually interesting just in speaking with blair witch like how the blair witch sequel which i don't know if we're going to talk about I've, or if we need to i've not seen it it's on amazon prime oh. um anyways uh what what i thought was interesting about the paranormal activity movies at least with the first two is they kind of use the same gimmick yeah. And what I thought was initially cool about the Blair Witch sequel is that um, initially they the, the first one they they played off as a documentary, right? Or or and then the the sequel uh, Book of Shadows was done as a narrative film. Yeah. And I thought that was a great way to do it. Now, don't get me started on what Book of Shadows became, but uh, anyway, sorry, uh, Ian, please continue. This is uh, fascinating because well, you're not you're not going to be you're not going to be happy. I I grabbed the uh, Rotten Tomato scores for both the Book of Shadows and the 2016 Blair Witch sequel as well. The Rotten Tomato score for Book of Shadows is 14 percent, with only an 18 percent audience. So I and actually I wanted to bring that up to you, Adam, because you can do it on your uh, your other podcast because it's I, we might have to fit that in. You, you, yeah. Uh, just well, no, we we watch we watch bad shit. We're, Dude, we're just, prepared for bad. Just I I went and saw Book of Shadows in the uh, theater, and I was mad, and I have not <laughs> seen it since. And it actually I think that might have been honestly like maybe subconsciously is why I didn't watch the original Blair Witch from beginning to end until this this week yeah because it is what it does is really disrespectful but uh, to the original Blair Witch but I'm also kind of super curious after getting into the mythology of Blair Witch to watch it again so uh I thank you guys for reintroducing me to the original Blair Witch but I may curse you guys because now I'm obsessed with watching Book of Shadows <laughs> because of this so we'll see what happens <clears throat> I guess we'll just have to take the hit on that one yeah. no no my and, wife's uh, gonna I, my wife's gonna have to suffer through it because I she agreed to watch it with me and so I'm gonna be sitting there being like what the fuck is this I remember why I hated it but you know that, that that's her problem not your guys's <laughs> Well, before I jump to number three with the uh, paranormal activity, is the third one called? Is that the marked ones? No, that's is that I the... think the fourth one. Okay, I stopped at does, three. Do... Okay, does three have a subtitle or is it just? No, it's three? just it's just three. But the third okay. the third okay. one is like where they introduce like the witches witches or something in it. I think. Oh, I don't. Know. There's yeah. Okay, that's fair. I I, <laughs> I, I don't, don't yeah I yeah. Anyways, again, useless knowledge well, up here. If you guys ever need any useless knowledge, call me. Well, number three makes me very, very happy because this is, uh, other than uh, Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape, this is 
the one of the, the the true incidences of the birth of indie darlings. This is Robert Rodriguez's El Mariachi. Ah, yeah. Uh, that that did two million dollars on a seven thousand dollar budget, which very famously he submitted himself to a bunch of uh, pharmaceutical testing and and put himself into debt in order to make this film. Anyway, it did uh, two hundred and eighty six times its budget, and I gotta say I got a soft spot for El Mariachi, man. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I'm right there with you. Love Elmer. Oh. Like for seven thousand dollars and what he pulled off in that, it's it's something else. I mean, it's like Desperado is cool because he was given some money yeah. and he got to you know do it. But it's it's almost like El Mariachi is Evil Dead, Desperado is Evil Dead too. It's like two different things. But El Mariachi, you could just tell like the heart that's in that, and this guy's gonna do everything he can. And the action scenes in that for seven thousand dollars. It's El Mariachi. God bless Rod- Robert Rodriguez. I love that guy. Yeah, I I love the uh, I love the comparison to uh, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead trilogy. But I will go out on a limb and say, uh, as far as those four films equating to each other, our, one Army of Darkness does not equal one Once Upon a Time in Mexico. That film is a fucking drag. <laughs> very fair. Very fair. I, I I think El Mariachi should be in the book just on general principle. Yeah. Oh wait, it's not in the book. No, no, it's wow. not. Wow. No. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Just, just conceptually, it should yeah. be in there to show Absolutely. you what you can do with that little. Uh, number two, and again, like I said, I think we have to address uh, this film being on the list at all, and whether or not it is documentary. Uh, Deep Throats making forty-five million dollars on a twenty-five thousand dollar budget, which get this is eighteen hundred times its budget. Wow. Well, I don't. I I've never seen it. I know the history of it. I, it was released theatrically. Yeah. I don't know, man. Yeah. I think it counts. I, and yeah. uh, if if you haven't seen it, I say treat yourself, sir. <laughs> The That's... dialogue in that film, whatever, however you feel about how um, Linda Lovelace was treated and, and her, it, it's a sticky territory as far as whether she was, I mean, there's no, there's no if, and, or buts about the abuse that she endured at the hands of whatever that fuckhead is. I can't remember his name. He's played by Peter Sarsgaard in the uh, uh, Linda Lovelace biopic that Amanda Seyfried was in, but there is a... I don't know. I go back and forth on on the complacency and and how much consent was was given, but it is a uh, it is a I think an important slice of Americana and uh, uh, sort of the beginning of a movement to you know whether for good or bad, probably more for bad, but it is a I think it's an important piece of film as far as a time capsule of America is concerned, which is a weird way to speak about porn, but I is what yeah. it is. I, I think that's that's accurate. Did you guys uh, watch that uh, show, the HBO show, The Deuce? I, I did not. Yes. Yeah. What'd oh, you think man, of it? Oh man, that fucking show. That's so, that show is fantastic. Like I, uh, I'm a big fan of The Wire. I'm not going to go as far to say as I think The Deuce trumps The Wire, but it's it's neck and neck, man. It's damn close. Yeah. Well, it was just interesting. I'm I'm glad you brought up Deep Throat because like the way as they get deeper into the seasons of The Deuce, like that that's kind of the reference point that uh, like what porn was becoming and like that it was released theatrically. I mean, that's kind of crazy to think about nowadays that porn was released theatrically and it made money. And I, I'm actually stunned. I, 
I would not have thought in a million years Deep Throat was what? What'd you say? Number three? Two. Two. Uh, no, that's number two. Oh, number two. One of the two. most profitable low budget films of all time. Wow. Crazy. Wow. Okay. And uh, even even if you don't if you don't want to subject yourself to the movie, you should definitely see the Brian Grazer produced Inside Deep Throat documentary. That is a really insightful piece of documentary filmmaking as to both the 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 making of the movie and then the aftermath of what it did to the actor's career and what it did to, you know, just the movie going public in general. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. Wow. All right, number, number one, one number should one. be no surprise, and the reason <laughs> why we're here, Blair Witch Project, uh, on a $60,000 budget that we already mentioned, it did uh, domestically $140.5 million, which is 200, sorry, 2,341 times its budget, which, you know, when you, when you include worldwide as well, it's almost double that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's, I mean, it, it kind of explains why the, the writers and directors, uh, didn't make a movie like after this from what i understand like they were offered i think um the exorcist prequel right after this the uh the one that like had two versions yeah one that rennie hardland did or whatever but they i mean they didn't like usually if you're an independent filmmaker and you you kind of have a hit you want to get out there and make another one because you're not making that much money but these guys made so much money off the first uh, off their first movie that they're rushed to do they they actually had the weird opportunity to be like no i don't want to do that they wanted to go make romantic comedies and and it's just wow mind blowing that I, right out of the gate they they made enough money that they didn't necessarily have to work again and if you look at their imdb credits they really haven't done much since then so yeah yeah, it took a. It seems like it took a really long time for them to get anything greenlit again, and it really speaks. Again, I talked about the short sightedness of the ad campaign, but it also speaks to just how pigeonholing the industry can be. As far as oh no, you did this one really successful thing of ours. We want to stamp out your creativity and just give us more of that shit. Oh wait, you want to make a romantic bills, comedy? Man. Yeah, you want to make a romantic comedy? Fuck you, give us another Blair Witch because we know that'll make us money. Well, and I think that's the thing, too, especially with uh, uh, if you get your start in horror filmmaking, you're kind of pigeonholed right there. I mean, look at Wes Craven's career. He didn't want to be a oh, horror filmmaker. But but I mean, aside from like what music of the heart, what else did he do that didn't have some type of element of horror in it? Uh, well, Vampire in Brooklyn, but that movie's horrifying on a different <laughs> level. But I mean, the, these guys, yeah, like right out of the gate, they wanted them to make the sequel or they offered them the exorcist prequel. They wanted them to do more horror because they just got pigeonholed and it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but I mean, at the same time, they still made their money. I mean, yeah. like again, artisan couldn't hide it fast enough. So, so Ian, who did you officially say who your unsung hero and and the weakest link? I'm not sure. If, I just wanted to clarify that. Oh yeah, no, my my weakest link for sure is Artisan. But hang on, give me just a second. Uh, my unsung hero, I I have their names here. The the post production sound guys oh, were right. uh, Harry Cohen, who went on to work on Prometheus and Inglorious Bastards. I mean, he's got a great filmography if you dig into him. But those two titles alone are enough to you know to tell you what a, a talent he is. And then you also have uh, Jerry Lentz, who went on to work on, or the same year, rather, worked on Boondock Saints. And then Richard Weingart, who, <laughs> if you look at his career, like, that is a, sh every, just a, a 
pick a TV show. The guy has worked on it. Most recently, uh, he's working on Amazon's The Boys. Do you have an unsung hero? Um, I agree with Ian, but I also uh, am going to give a little bit of credit to the editors, which would also happen to be the writers, directors, because I think, you know, the fact that they were out there for eight days and they were shooting um, a little bit on film, but mostly on that high eight camera they had that, I mean, that was just cheap to shoot on. I can't imagine like going through and especially like the initial cut being two and a half hours um, and even whittling it down from there and knowing how much source material they had. I mean, they left these actors out there pretty much all day filming. Yeah. Like to have to go through that, will it down, but ultimately it, 100% I agree with Ian the the sound the the remix they did uh post Sundance uh when Artisan was able to dump a little bit more money into that um what what's crazy is that they used the sound off the high 8 camera and but the way they were able to sweeten it remix it it's that it just blows my mind like they they the sound in that movie I think is what makes it so creepy like how and especially at the very end when um, Mike has the high eight camera and she has the film camera because the film camera doesn't record sound. So as he's running up the stairs, running down the stairs and you hear her screaming in the way, like you hear her far away. And as she's running down the stairs, it's getting closer because it's yeah. recording off. It's just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant sound design. And I am not surprised that those guys went on to work on such things as Prometheus and, and everything that Ian just listed. It's uh I think sound is one of the most unsung heroes in most movies and especially in something like this. It, uh, it just, yeah, it, it, it's the best part of this movie. I'm going to, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, this is, this is Oscar worthy sound design that went unrecognized. So yeah. truly unsung heroes. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Okay. I don't, I don't. Okay. So I, I have a cheeky answer to this. Um, <laughs> Uh, my unsung hero of the movie is Richard Moreno, who was the art director. Um, and oh, I know, I know where this is going. He literally is unsung because he went unseen as the Blair Witch. Um, and I gotta say, I'm really glad that things happened the way they did, and we didn't see somebody dressed the way they explained it, like in all white. Uh, um, I'm really glad I, I, I gotta say, had we seen something, I mean, maybe it would have been so fast that it would have, it would have added to the, like, Oh God, there's something there. But I, I gotta say, I, I didn't want to see it. And I'm glad that we, that we didn't. That's a hilarious. That's so good. That's, that's a really good. I, I think it's, it's a happy accident that you didn't see it. Cause I think the best thing about this movie is like what it does with your imagination, right? Like yeah. it makes when they're running out and being like, what the fuck is that? What the, and I think yeah. that's where you're supposed to see it. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and you don't see it. So you're like, what the fuck is that? What am I? I think that's, that's a, that's a great unsung. Yeah. That's really funny. That's a, that's really, we, Adam, we've talked about off mic, adding a segment into the, the, the shows where we talk about our thesis statements, you know, wrapping up the show with, and I, and I know we're 90 minutes in, but we don't necessarily have to wrap up the show with this is because there's, there is one really big issue that I do want to address with you guys, but the idea of the Blair Witch in general, is it, is it a happy accident or is it the most is it the most successful case of uh, a lack of professionalism? Like they, they knew that they were supposed to get that shot and yet they didn't. So is that, 
is that one of the film's strengths that we don't see the Blair Witch, or is it a case of something where we're denied the sort of title character of the film? I mean, that's that's a great question. I again going going back to this idea of Josh not being able to work the sixteen millimeter. I think there are a lot of things that didn't get that kind of attention, right? Uh, I think it. I think it would be safe to say that during the production, the actual filming of the movie, our writer director team were probably more. Um, I would say invested in, you know, setting up the next shot. How are we going to fuck with the act? Like getting the performances out of the actors, um, and so you know, I that that some of it wasn't shot by them, but a lot of it, a lot of it was, and. I don't I don't want to say that it's a lack of professionalism. I just think this is a true blue indie movie that they just they literally did the best with what they they had. Yeah, and I I, no. I agree with that. And I think, Ian, I'm I'm actually glad you've uh you've you've called some stuff out. And I think uh maybe it was uh the time I, I saw it and and uh, back, you know, 20 years ago at that uh, advanced screening and uh, talking with you now and, and watching the movie again uh, this past week and seeing those things like uh, the interview with Mary Brown where she's out of focus. And, and I'm sitting there, I recall it was, it was just like a blast from the past watching this. And I remember seeing her like out of focus and being like, that's really weird. It's awkward, but it, it works in this movie. But I think it's a lot of, you know, after, after talking with you guys, I think a lot of it was just very happy accidents that that seem to work i mean there's um you know I, I listened to the commentary track and it's interesting to hear the directors be like oh this was this was a a very good shot because the actors were not um you know professional camera people so they happen to get like a good depth of field shot or whatever and the the shot of uh heather's infamous um you know confession where it's it's uh, her face is slightly off camera and it's really awkward. It just seemed to work. That wasn't was how it was supposed to be, right? Like none of this is how it's supposed to be. It just seemed to like fit. And I think that's why part of my unsung heroes were the editing because they picked these moments and decided to go with them um, based on what they got. But again, I think, yeah, I think, I think Ian, you're, you're right in a lot of aspects that yeah it was just a lot of happy accidents and everything seemed to work out so maybe the unsung hero is luck for these these uh these filmmakers you know so because it it really is like it's it's funny like again just listening to the commentary and they were like oh it wasn't supposed to be like this but it worked out it wasn't supposed to be like this but it worked out and so i'm kind of regretting listening to the commentary because i just wanted to believe like oh this is how they meant for it to be but I'm also cool with happy accidents, you know, uh, I think, um, just overall, like what they did with it and like the mythology and for $60,000 and they went out and did it. I think, I think that's pretty fucking cool, but happy accidents all, all the same. Well, that's, that's great. I think that's a, that's a first here at a thousand and one by one. Our unsung heroes have always been tangible elements or people rather than a concept. So <laughs> if I was wearing a hat, Chaz, I would take it off. <laughs> well, well, I, I, I mean, if anything, uh, Blair Witch is, is concept all the way through, right? So it's, uh, but yeah, they, they got they, they got lightning in a bottle with this one for sure. So this is this is sort of my final thought. And again, we don't have to wrap up if you guys have more that you want to say about the film. Let's let's do that. But let's, I wanted I think, to because I have a, I, w- I have a final thought too. So let's let's we'll all have a final thought. Yeah. Uh, mine is kind of a, a bigger sort of macro issue when it comes to 
sort of film in general and the Blair Witch being the sort of spearhead of a particular issue that I think is plaguing both cinema and television now, and that is, is uh, toxic fan bases. So there is an article that came out uh, last July right on, so we're at the 21st anniversary of the Blair Witch, but I think it's funny, the Blair Witch is now old enough to have a drink. Uh, but last <laughs> oh, year man. for the don't, don't 20th say that anniversary... To me. Don't say that to me. I, I'm, that, that's making me feel really old right now, but uh, <laughs> please continue. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, no, dude, trust me. When we, did, when we did both the 30th anniversary of Goodfellas and the 20th anniversary of Gladiator back-to-back, that definitely put some things in perspective for me. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. No, 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 please. Um, so the New York Times, uh, an article by a fellow named Jake Kring Schreifels. I'm probably mispronouncing his last name. I probably you'll never listen to this, but I apologize for mispronouncing his last name. He did a, a he did an article, The Blair Witch at 20, uh, Why It Can't Be Replicated was the subtitle of his article. And it was broken into different parts. This is uh, a piece from his, I think it's just the, one of the final sort of thesis statements or, or paragraphs called a narrow window. Um, so it, it, he went on to say that um, Manello, uh, Mike Manello, who was a producer on The Blair Witch, who was instrumental in funding and pu- uh, publicizing the film, put together a stylistic, unique website filled with archival photos and a timeline of its purported history. Uh, they monitored the website's message board, which was an early internet outpost for horror fans to share theories and debate the so-called ele- uh, evidence, which is great because that's I'm all for bringing the community together, having a, a platform in which to share a love of film. That's what we do here. Uh, that particular strategy may be hard to duplicate now, but the deeper lessons about connecting with fans in the media-driven age are still relevant. Uh, I think the Blair Witch Project was the first example of what the power of fandom would do in Hollywood, said Manello, now the founder of Campfire, an entertainment marketing agency. When you connect fans together on the internet, their shared passion deepens. Well, you do have to, unfortunately, consider the flip side of that, which can generate toxic fan bases. Look at something like Rick and Morty, when when they did their whole Szechuan sauce thing, you know, when McDonald's tried to do a tie-in and bring back that sauce that was tied into Mulan back in 98, and you had fans abusing McDonald's employees who make, you know, barely minimum wage, or you have people going on the internet to campaign for bringing back a show like Brooklyn Nine-Nine and, and influencing a studio or a television, you know, network to bring back a show, or even something like... Adam and I, we talked about this last week, the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League. Now, you've opened a door that can't be closed, and you have allowed the fans to dictate how you make your piece of art or your piece of entertainment. I think this is very, very dangerous ground that we're on, making people believe that they are part of the creative process when they are not. My initial response to that is that I don't necessarily think that that's an issue of 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 uh, toxic fan base, more as that's a deeper issue of just social media giving everybody an outlet to have an opinion about anything, and you know I have to imagine that again like before Blair Witch Project like if you didn't like something you could write in somewhere you know you could you could voice a complaint through a magazine or through a newspaper and and maybe generate some kind of a an upswell for whatever kind of change. But it's become so easy now to find, I mean, fuck even a whole movie or a whole series, like an episode of something or a commercial or like part of a movie that's like, now it's, I mean, and I haven't, 
I I don't this is this is really unfamiliar to me, but I know like the new Mulan that they made, right? Was filmed in a part of China that is really uh it's I don't know the group, so I'm not gonna I don't wanna talk out of my depth here, but like was filmed in an area of China where there's a lot of um racial injustice going on for a certain um a certain group of Chinese and like well, the lead actress came out as being anti-processors and pro-police brutality, or yeah. pro. Well, I shouldn't. Sorry, I shouldn't put words in her mouth. I shouldn't say pro-police brutality, but I should say pro-authoritarianism. Sure, and like this is not a subject that I know enough of. You, if you, as if you couldn't tell by the way I just rambled through that, but like, I don't know that I would have known that, and the fact that that came out. Like, an immediate, like, oh, no, th- don't watch this movie. Don't watch it. And I, I don't know. I mean, am I so am I to not watch this movie now because of where it was filmed? And it goes with everything. It's like, are we not allowed to praise Rosemary's Baby anymore because of who directed it? Like, and I, and that's and that's a lot of also, that that's rose-tinted glasses. That's looking into the past. But, like, anything that gets made now almost immediately can come under scrutiny because it is just that quick. Yeah, no, I, I, I know. I'm sorry. I've opened I've opened a huge <laughs> door, which with Fuck. questions that I know just the three of us can't answer. It's a huge macro problem. But I do have genuine fears for the future of entertainment because of the way that social media has enabled fan bases for for good or bad. We are not we are not creative voices. We should we should not feel like we are participants in the media that we consume unless we are creators like just because you are a fan of something doesn't give you the right to dictate the way that it is made i mean look at the backlash for the final season of game of thrones oh yeah yeah no it's i mean especially these days you live in with the cancel culture and everything and and like you said everybody thinking that they have a voice or they have an opinion it's oh man i mean there's I'm I'm a fan of a lot of stuff and uh you know even just going back to the shitty Friday the 13th series respect but uh it you know I'm not going to write in and complain and cry about it and it, it's crazy to see like especially stuff like with the Zack Snyder cut um that people are demanding it it's amazing that uh the response that's given to this honestly it, it kind of shocks me um but I mean I can also see why uh um they would do the Zack Snyder cut because there's a wide enough audience, I guess, to make it worthwhile. But I mean, it's just crazy to have, you know, what was it? Uh, the last Jedi. Um, they want that removed from Canon. Like fans want that removed from Fuck Canon. You. That was the Are best you... one of the, sorry. No, I agree with I... you. I actually love last Jedi. I I'm sorry. Too. I'm on record. Fuck you. If you don't agree with me, it's, I thought it was great. Because uh, it was I'm going to, I'm going to keep my mouth shut then. That's no, no. That's, oh, I didn't mean fuck you. I just mean just like in general. No, 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 because, no, no. Fuck you. Oh, no, 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 no. no, no. Yeah, but, no, no. Fuck me. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I just think like, but in those in these situations, like you know, just let people. I don't know. The the yeah, this is a heavy question. I don't even know how to. I know. I I know. No, but it's uh, but but you're right. I think it's. I think toxic fandom is is uh, is a big problem uh, with with a lot of stuff now. I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's 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 all. I mean, I wish I wish fans would get more upset about the stuff that I miss that I want to come back, but they right. they don't do that. So I know, like I said, I know I know I opened a huge generalized door, but I I because I am 
the sort of polarizing, outspoken prick, and I really want to embrace being that personality. You know, I'm going to go the big shock jock DJ route with this and say to, and, and deliberately go out of my way to try and alienate as many people as I can right now. I'm sorry, you didn't like the fact that Tom Bombadil wasn't in Lord of the Rings. You didn't like The Last Jedi. You didn't like the fact that Zack Snyder didn't get his cut. You didn't like the fact that Game of Thrones, the final season, wasn't what you wanted it to be. Fuck you. Go out there. Make your own shit. You don't get to be a creative voice in something that you are not a creator in. I think you just said what I wanted to say, yeah. to be honestly. Yeah. Th- th- thank you. Thank yeah. you, Ian. That was, that was yeah. 100% yeah. accurate. Fucked. I'm going to go right now. Fuck toxic fan bases. Fuck them. Yep. yep. There you go. And I think it's perfectly fine to have a re like like I'm I am somebody I'll, I I I hated the last season of Game of Thrones I really did didn't like it didn't find it entertaining but I'm not gonna say please go and re-edit and and fix fix Game of Thrones what where the fuck do I get to come off to do I mean you just said that but like I just wanted to give a real example like yeah I did not like it but by no means do I think they should do anything about it. Well, and what I think yep. is actually pretty awesome about it, and, and even talking with you guys today about Blair Witch, and after I watched it this week again, like it just reignited. Like I think it's one of my favorite horror movies of all time. But like talking to you guys and getting some of the um, different perspectives of it, that's that's kind of the point. It's like, you know, you didn't like um, the last season of Game of Thrones. Why not? I loved it. And then you start going back yeah, and forth, exactly. and then you can you have a conversation about it. If you didn't like it don't fucking cry on Facebook about it and, and start a petition. Like, yeah. I think uh, actually what you said, Ian, I think that's 100% accurate. Fuck you. If you wanted to work on game of Thrones, you should have, you should have got out there and, and put in your work and been on the crew or whatever. You know, if, if you don't like it, go start your own shit, go do your own shit. That's, that's uh 100%. I agree with that. Oh, thanks man. I don't, I don't even want to say my last thing now. No, no, no! Come on, let's. No, let's no, do it. It, mine wasn't really. I, I just wanted to go through. I wanted to. I just as a. I think in the review that you read, you mentioned the fact that this isn't uh, the whoever that was from the Observer. Um, that it, this wasn't particularly scary movie, um, and not all of the things I'm going to say are scary. But I, I just wanted to run through sort of like the series of events, kind of once they get into the woods. Um, Mike hears a, a cackling sound that no one else does. That's the first night that they're out there. Then during the next day is when they see the piles of rocks, both on the ground and then in the trees. And then that night is when they hear that sort of like weird rock crackling sound in the distance. They don't know what it is. Um, the next day they wake up and there are piles of rocks outside of their tent. And then that's when they find the hanging symbols in the trees. That night is the night that we hear the sound of children uh, around and then the tent shakes. That's when they run out. They come back. We find that all of um, Josh's shit has been thrown around and it's got slime on it. Then, during that day of traveling, they come to the same log again somehow, confirming the fact that they have no fucking clue where they are. Then, Josh is gone. That that night, we hear Josh in pain. We don't hear any words. And then the next night is when we actually hear him saying, you know, I forget what he says, but he's saying things and it leads him to the house. Now, I, now that that really that unfortunately just pairs the movie down to a list of uh, of events, but again, I think you just read the script for the movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But but like why I wanted to do that because each thing builds upon the next, right? That 
when we see the piles of rocks, like that's a weird thing. Like they're in the trees. That's a weird thing. We see the fucking symbol thing, right? That's that's extra strange. Like it's not just hearing sounds, it's hearing kids laughing. That's fucked up. And like each I, I don't think that there's any I would say outside of the end image, personally, I don't find anything particularly scary in the movie outside of that. But I don't think that end is as effective without all of these steps to get there. Um, in a very weird way, that's how I thought about the the um, Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Like, you have to suffer through, like, two through, what is it, whatever it is, before you get to New Nightmare. Because, because New Nightmare is really meta and it's really weird. But if you can go on the journey, it's like, cool, we, we earned this this spot. And I... I know I'm pretty sure I know what your answer is and that's cool but like I I do think it this movie earns each moment and I just wanted to to state that for the record I guess. Well you going point by point brings me to I mentioned a, a deleted moment where they were building upon the relationship between Josh and Heather. There's another moment that they pulled out of the film where we see her take one of the Blair Witch stick figures. Yeah. And uh, I think I think at this point, you know, going into the movie, I think we know it's a foregone conclusion that doom is about to befall these three characters. But I do like the idea of if you're if you're going to make Heather an arrogant, self-serving character, well, then fucking lean into it. You're only making an 81 minute movie. You have room to breathe. That's a moment that could have lasted 10, 15 seconds. Why not keep that in? Sure. And really cements her arrogance and her disrespect for this so-called myth. Uh, before we get to question time, Chaz, do you have any any final Blair Witch thoughts? Oh God, um, I got a lot rolling around through my head, but it's <laughs> it's been a great conversation. I mean, I think uh, you know just what I find interesting about this this movie ultimately is I think that the mythology that was created around it and. Um, Again, I felt just like a kid discovering something watching this movie again. Like, and and I know that they've done specials like Curse of the Blair Witch, the Burkittsville Seven, like all the, like what I think is, uh, pretty phenomenal. Whether you like it or not about the Blair Witch is that they created this mythology, the website they created, the the viral marketing and what they did. And I remember again, one year after I saw it at uh, my my freshman year, my sophomore year, it came out on DVD, and they put those stick figures all around campus. Yeah. And that's just, that's just, it was just a cool experience that, um, I think it just has this mythology. And as someone who loves like ghost stories and horror and stuff, it's, um, it's, it's just crazy to, to think that, a, I mean, I know it's a, like the $60,000 budget, but like that they did this and it's really, it really is a simple ass fucking movie. It's a pile of rocks. It's some stick figures with twine. I think they said the most expensive thing they had to pay for was the rights to the Gilligan's Island theme when they're sitting there that one night and oh, they kind of sing. Yeah, that was literally like, that was the most expensive thing. And then they said the second thing was the twine to, uh, to tie the sticks together. Um, but all this simplicity uh, created something that again, in, as you said, like it, a, a lot of it is happy accident, but it just seemed to fit. Uh, at least for me, I, I think um, uh, it, it's cool to see something that was so simple, like have legs and, and still be talked about whether you love it or hate it. I, that, that's that's what I love about uh, this type of stuff is that uh, 
you know, again, I came in just like guns blazing. Like I love Blair Witch, uh, but like talking with you guys, it's like, oh yeah, no, I can see why people don't now. You know, I'm not, I'm not gonna try to force my opinion on anybody. It's, it's, it's one of those movies that is just a cool conversation to have. So, so I think we're there. Chaz is our guest. We'll ask you first, Chaz. Do you think that the Blair Witch Project should be in the book? Yes, I do. Um, and I know uh, um, it's. I know as you guys have uh, kind of gone through these movies, and and I know that sometimes maybe the uh, uh, the the zeitgeist uh, or the cultural effect that a movie has had maybe isn't a reason. But I think in this situation, it is because I think that the Blair Witch Project was a very influential movie. It wasn't the first found footage movie. I mean, hell, uh, Cannibal Holocaust had a very similar story and uh, had a very similar um, reaction to it. They kept the actors out of the limelight for that. Woof. And the, <laughs> that movie is. Oh, no, woof. no, I don't recommend watching no, oh, no, that unless just... you want to torture yourself. But uh, but I mean, it, like it wasn't uh, like the first one to do it, but I think it just did it effectively. And what's crazy is that the found footage true craze didn't happen until a couple almost 10 years later with paranormal activity that's yeah. when you really hit your stride but you still go back to that paranormal activity was in like the influ the influence that uh Blair Witch had I think um is still kind of felt and I think it's still inspiring like watching that movie again I almost felt like uh 20 years old again in film school or whatever, like I want to go make something yeah. right now. I want to grab a can. Like they did this. Like it was. It's just an inspirational uh, production, um, and it also just happens to fall in the genre that I love the most. So of course I'm gonna I'm gonna give it some love. I'm gonna say yeah. You gotta you gotta acknowledge like at least the impact it had, whether you love it or hate it. I think it's an important movie. So yeah. And I'm gonna go next. Yeah, please do. So, and I have my little blurb. I'm going to read my blurb first. Okay. Yeah, do so, it. This is what I got. Whether this is your first viewing or fifth, The Blair Witch Project's no frills, all thrills, concise tale of getting lost in the woods will truly make you tense in the most cinematic of ways. Do not let the fact that this film has been parodied to death deter you from such a well-acted and an original telling of an extremely old story. Yes, I think this should be in the book. I, I almost don't want to read mine because I, Chaz, I feel such a kinship to you. I don't want to alienate you. <laughs> oh, no, please, please. I love this. This is what I'm, this, this honestly has been so much fun because I love when people don't necessarily agree. And again, you've kind of opened my eyes to some, some, uh, some perspectives that I was just, you know, driving around yep. with. Uh, yeah. So please. By read all it. Means. Oh, I, I mean, I'm fine with alienating Adam. I don't give a shit about him. That's, oh no, please alienate me. Trust, trust me. I'm, I'm a, I'm a geek. I've been alienated. Uh, I'm, I'm 40 now. I've been alienated uh, 39 years and nine months. I think I had three months yeah. of love. So yeah, here we go. <clears throat> All right, this is my little final thesis statement, or whatever you want to call it. My little uh, uh, critical blurb. The Blair Witch Project, though instrumental and brackets to blame in spearheading a new subgenre, has almost nothing to offer in the way of rewatch value. A great after-the-fact sound mix nowhere near makes up for the dismal performances and is-that-it ending and irritating camera work. People can go right ahead and keep telling themselves that's the point, but on-screen or off, amateur is exactly that. 
It seems that the nostalgic feelings regarding the film have to stem from an inventive ad campaign which is all but meaningless today, and for those of us who remember it, perhaps now it's the time to acknowledge that it was short-sighted. <laughs> Ooh, damn! So, Ian, so what is... So, what, so you are keeping it in the book, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. 100%. All right, so so it's it's everybody agrees, right? Sweet. <laughs> oh, wow. That's that's very fair and that's that's why I think one of the reasons I love this movie is it's it it just kind of splits the the sea yeah. right there, you know. And uh yeah, that's great. I love I I couldn't disagree with anything you said. I can totally see the the perspective 100%. Oh, so what oh, are thanks, you choosing I, I appreciate What that. are you choosing to replace it with? Cannibal Holocaust. So this isn't <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I know that film's reputation, and I think I uh, destroyed my psyche one too many times between Salo and uh, my sort of. I know uh, you guys have covered Salo. <laughs> my, yeah. my morbid, my morbid fascination with Lars von Trier has broken my spirit a number of times, and will continue to do so. We're actually planning on watching the house that Jack built this weekend. Oh shit! Uh, All right. Uh, well, real quick, do you have Shutter? I don't have Shutter, but it is on. I have an IFC subscription, so it's on there. Oh well, I would say um, if if you ever want to get into Cannibal Holocaust, I think uh, Joe Bob Briggs did it on this last season. So at least you get like interjections every fifteen minutes with Joe Bob, like drinking beer and talking shit. So it, it might oh, be the nice. best way to ever watch Cannibal Holocaust, but I don't think there's ever a best way Oof, to watch that. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> So my my replacement is like I said, it's not quite a found footage film, but there it's it's a film that uh, was one of the first mainstream films to be shot completely on digital, and so spearheaded uh, a different way of making films. And it's uh, for anybody who hasn't seen it and wants to, it's available right now uh, with a sci-fi subscription or with a sling subscription. It is Danny Boyle's 2002 masterpiece, masterpiece, 28 days later. Yes. Now, I know there's a lot of shit talking that happens about this film. Is it a zombie film? Is it not? To the people that say it's not, I say go back to your fucking hair splitters convention because this <laughs> is the evolution of the zub- the zombie uh, subgenre. Um, I love that we don't get, and especially now in the the age of pandemic that we're living in. I mean, this film bears even more. Uh, importance than it did on its initial release but the idea that we don't know what causes this contagion is it is it in the monkeys is it the fact that we you know in the scientists in the film they subjected them to nothing but rageful footage uh the cast is fucking phenomenal you've got mm-hmm. killian murphy uh naomi harris is uh, brendan gleason the, amen uh, brendan yep. gleason that's right most people will know naomi harris is the new mish money penny in the james bond <laughs> franchise uh, it's got two of my absolute favorite performances in any British film ever, and that is both, as you mentioned, Brendan Gleeson. I think he gives one of the most heartbreaking performances of, oh. of his career outside of In Bruges and Calvary. And then you have the great, one of the most underrated British actors in the history of British film, Mr. Christopher Eccleston. The line where he admits what his sort of the thing that he has to give into and the fact that he can't let them leave. I promise them women that line fucking cuts through me like hot butter through a knife because, you know, that 
everything as as shit as everything has been in that movie up to that point they are going to get nothing but worse for these characters the cinematography like i said they were breaking new ground to the fact they had to bring in an experimental cinematographer anthony dodd mantle who has gone on to shoot some incredible things as i mentioned lars von trier with antichrist he shot that he shot the last king of scotland which is one of my favorite films of the last decade or rather the decade before uh, he shot Rush, Slumdog Millionaire. He's now a, a regular Danny Boyle uh, collaborator. Danny Boyle, I think, is... I I said this to, to my wife as we were watching 28 Days Later, and I hadn't seen it for almost a decade, and reliving those, those great cathartic feelings that we had surrounding this film, I said, I think what really breaks my heart, and maybe I'm speaking out of turn when I say this, but I think Danny Boyle is going to be one of those filmmakers that we don't realize his greatness truly until he's gone, because I don't think Danny Boyle is in enough conversations when we talk about the great directors of our era, especially with a film like this, where he, if you'll pardon the pun, sort of resurrected his career. He had gone from making two of the best British films of all time with Shallow Grave and Train Spotting, which is on my top five films of all time. Fuck to yeah. making two of it, I, what I think are his worst films. He made uh, A Lifeless Ordinary and uh, The Beach, the, the terrible oh, fucking DiCaprio film. Yeah, and fuck yeah, yeah. Back, yeah. <laughs> yeah he enough. came yeah. screaming back with this and what they accomplished on the budget that they had. If you haven't seen this film in a while, I urge you guys to go back and watch it and just sort of bask in awe of what they were able to do on the infinitesimal budget that they had and had to lean on um not the british film institute but the the national lottery for additional funding to get this thing made and and the fact that the film looks so sort of grainy and garbagey is is not as again like so many things in player witch project it's not just a happy accident but something that was born out of necessity because there's no way you could have set up those shots showing a deserted London without being able to just quickly get your cameras up and going with those DV cameras that you could just buy off of any, you know, big box shelf. Which I soundtrack, think... fuck, fuck me running. The soundtrack by John Murphy is one of the all-time great British film soundtracks. I think actually what you just said, especially like with them shooting it on digital uh, and seeing like London closed down on digital, that is something like if you see a big budget movie shot on 35 or whatever, you expect that, but you see it in digital. It, it just adds this extra layer of like, Holy shit. This is like, this is real. It, it feels like anybody. Yeah. No, it, yeah that, it that's, hits that's home a, harder. Yeah. Yeah. Oh fuck. 28 days later. So good. Danny boy. I agree. I, and I think you're right. I, I don't think he'll get his due credit until, uh, sadly he's, he's maybe gone, which hopefully isn't yeah, anytime soon. I mean, because look at, you look at his other films, 127 Hours, even uh, a lesser sort of effort like Trance, that little psychological thriller that he made with McAvoy and, and Rosaria Dawson. There's a lot to be valued. And I, I think he's one of the most unique eyes, not just in British cinema, but in uh, just cinema in general. And I would be remiss not to call out the great Alex Garland, who wrote that script and who has now gone on to be an amazing director in his right. Ex Machina is Ex a Machina film. Ex Machina is fantastic. That... I walked out of that film and I went, what the fuck am I supposed to do with my life now? Like that film (laughs) to this day still challenges me. I mean, Annihilation, I I could take it or leave it, but it's still, you can't argue that it's not a unique film. Yeah. Well, I got to say, that's a good replacement. Yeah. I'm on board. I was was trying to make, I, I, I can feel 
not the resentment, but I can certainly feel the love for Blair Witch coming across the Skype call. So I felt like I had to make a very, a very good argument for replacing it with 28 Days Later. So I, I kind of, I swung for the fences as much as I could there. Oh no, absolutely no resentment for me, brother. I think it. Uh, I think uh, the the conversation was great. I I appreciate everything you said, and and it's changed my perspective a little bit. But putting twenty eight days late, la- yeah, you, that nice replacement. Yeah, you win. Oh, thanks, man. And <laughs> yeah. and and right back at you, man, Chaz. This was such a a pleasure and a privilege having. I'm not again. I don't I don't blow smoke, but this was a genuine pleasure having you on the show. And my congratulations to you and your significant other. Thank you, on, thank on you, becoming uh, parents, man. Like, I would more, like to thank all the power you. to you, man. Oh, sorry. I was just gonna say I'd like to thank you guys again. Uh, this has been very awesome. Uh, but again, I'm gonna curse you probably by tomorrow because I'm gonna go home and watch Book of Shadows, Blair Witch Two. Uh, <laughs> you guys opened up uh, Pandora's box, so I'm gonna revisit the whole series now. And uh, and my poor wife is gonna suffer because she's gonna have to watch it with me. So. <laughs> Well, again, and Ian said it too, but thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for bringing your, your perspective and, and just your, your knowledge of horror films too. It, it, it really helps, you know, we love these conversations. So thank you again for being on the show. Um, and so that's what we think, where there were two yeses and one no for Blair Witch Project. Um, but as always, we want to know what you think. So please find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Hit us up. Let us know. What are you watching around Halloween time? Let us know what you think are, you know, good scare movies, bad scare movies, they're all credible. Um, you can uh, support the show and find us on patreon.com slash 1001 by one. You can find us on Spotify and Google and Stitcher and, and Apple. And I think, I think Amazon now or whatever. I mean, we're everywhere. So find us, listen, rate, like, subscribe, all those great things. Um, and now we said this a few weeks ago, but now really there's going to be a big break. Uh, expect maybe a Christmas gift from us as of an episode. Um, but uh we're gonna be we're gonna be gone for a while. We're taking a nice nice little break for the holidays, um, but until uh, I'd say Christmas time. Um, I am Adam, and I'm Ian. That happy Halloween. <laughs> <laughs>